Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, Corey, we never took the time to celebrate, but a while back, we hit a million downloads of our podcast, which I think puts us in like the top one or 2% of all podcasts. Super exciting. Obviously, there's a huge gap between like within that top one or 2%, but just exciting to see that this information that we're trying to provide is useful, relevant for people. Kellen, I'll be excited when it's 1 million downloads per episode per week. Oh, well, maybe we'll leave that for our next podcast. Hey, there you go. We're getting closer. Uh, I don't believe you. (laughs) I only half believe myself. (laughs) But yeah, we've been talking through more plans, trying to make sure we do it the right way when we do launch our uh, podcast on resilience, preparedness. Uh, building community, everything in that realm. Yeah, I'm excited for it. I'm excited about the million downloads we've got up to now. I'm excited for the next million. It's just cool to think that, at least in some way, people are gaining some sort of value from what we're talking about. Hopefully it's in a positive way. Hopefully it's not like people are addicted to doom, right? But rather that uh, the many messages that we get saying that the podcast helps people with their mental health because it gives an organized way to, to consider these things. I hope that's true in most cases. I hope so too. And one thing that I find especially meaningful is that a lot of our content is fueled by listeners of the podcast. In fact, what we're going to be talking about today 
was something that was suggested by one of our listeners. And, you know, we have a, a list of all these things that have been suggested that we still haven't had a chance to get to. There's a lot of runway here, important topics for us to dive into and research, discuss. But I think uh, a lot of the credit goes to those of you that have listened to our episodes all along the way and are actually taking the time uh, to contribute like that. Okay, so I think we can transition then. You may remember a long time ago, early on in the podcast, we had an episode on trading independence for convenience. That was your very first episode that you ran. That's right. Probably the best one. It's the best episode we've had in the entire podcast <laughs> for sure. All downhill from there. <laughs> Anyways, at the time, you know, a good share of what we talked about was like subscriptions. And we discussed the way that we've shifted from owning to renting almost everything that we use, uh, which for us as consumers is more expensive in the long run, but it's cheaper and more convenient up front. And it makes other people more money. <laughs> yes, very true. And at the time, we also kind of made a nod to, at least regarding physical products, something called planned obsolescence. And there are a few facets of that which are very relevant to the topic of collapse that we are going to dive into today. They deserve a little bit more time and attention. Um, this is especially relevant right now in light of all the historic inflation that we're seeing. Obviously, there's more money in the system, um, which naturally results in everyone uh, feeling like they can charge more. Plus, there's been all these supply chain issues that have caused either short-term or long-term shortages. That reduces supply, which results in scarcity, which allows you know retailers to, to feel like they can charge more. And oftentimes, they maintain those higher prices even when supply chains normalize, right? And as companies have felt the pressure of inflation they have often resorted to something else that just exacerbates the problem even more, something that's called shrinkflation. And this this can be harder to spot as the consumer, you know, because you might think like, oh good, my bag of Doritos costs the same as it did three months ago. It's not being affected by inflation. When in reality, that bag of Doritos has gone from 9.75 ounces to 9.25 ounces. And and by the way, just some examples of shrinkflation, because this will become relevant later. You know, a, a bar of Dove soap has gone from 4 ounces down to 3.75 ounces, down to 3.17 ounces in just the last few years. Wow. Um, laundry detergent, there's examples of it going from like 53 loads down to 42 loads. Um, you, uh, I've seen some examples of Haagen-Dazs ice cream that was 500 milliliters. And now, you know, the container's almost the exact same size. It looks the same, but it's just 414 milliliters and still costs the same. I think I remember mentioning, mentioning once on the podcast about the dog food that I buy for my dogs. Um, it went from 50 pounds, 50 pound bags, down to like 42 pound bags except for on the bag i remember it saying now 45 pounds like we give you three extra pounds for free 
And I'm like, no, it was 50 pounds before. You're claiming that normally it's 42 and you're giving me 45. You're giving me five pounds less and charging me the same or close to the same. Yeah, that's what's so funny is I was looking at these images comparing the same product from just a couple of years ago. Usually there's a big, bold label on there, like with the laundry detergent that says like 75% more. And then in very tiny print, it explains that a little bit more. And if you have all of the context there, you can see that like they're really just manipulating you. You're getting 100% more product than you would get if you didn't buy this at all. (laughs) (laughs) That reminds me, this is a little bit of a tangent, but my dad for many years was a product designer for um, a company that makes exercise equipment. When we would be watching TV and we would see the commercial of like Bowflex or some exercise system and they would show before and after photos, uh, he, he pointed out to me that they don't say anything else other than before and after. Like those are the only two words on the screen. Right. And that that is like a loophole that's able to be used in a lot of cases where they're not saying what it's before and, and what it's after. So we all just assume they're saying before and after using this system. But it can be before and after anything. Before steroids and after steroids. Right. Before he got a suntan and after he got a suntan. Yeah, before liposuction and after liposuction. Before they oiled him up and after they oiled him up. Before and after Photoshop. <laughs> Anyways, um, all of that relates to, that, that helps give context to where we're going. So there is a different issue that is related to these forms of inflation. Um, but it, it's one in which the product quality declines. So not necessarily the quantity, like we've talked about with shrinkflation, but when the product quality declines, you know, even for the same product for the same price, there are factors driving this from both the producer side and from the consumer side. So on the producer side, occasionally there is something that I referred to earlier called planned obsolescence. And there are different forms of that. But basically the idea is as a business, why would you want to sell a customer one gizmo that will last them a lifetime if instead you can sell them that same gizmo over and over again? Sure. And if you'll remember our previous episode, this harkens back to like the centennial light bulb. You may remember that there there is actually all of this evidence of this uh, cartel that was formed. Basically, all of these leaders, you know, from General Electric and Philips and across the industry got together, actually planned to essentially make a worse mousetrap, right? Or literally a worse light bulb, a light bulb that wouldn't last as many hours. And you can read the whole story on this and the way that it was justified at the time, but the way that it was all uh, corruption and collusion, um, these light bulbs went from lasting somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 hours down to only 1,000 hours. And that definitely happens sometimes, right? Like, I don't doubt that the producers of products sometimes plan for a product to become obsolete in the sense of it it just not working anymore. More often, producers are trying to reduce their costs of goods sold as much as possible. And so they might use like less durable plastic 
or they'll use less metal in the frame. And and because they're competing globally and you know th- there are some brands that are trying to compete in quality with really high-end products, but many of the products that are marketed to the masses are competing on price. So they're trying to drive their own costs down. There are other forms and we've mentioned these briefly of this type of planned obsolescence. Uh, Maybe it would go by different names, but they can make a product intentionally designed so that you can't really fix or repair it yourself. Right. There's all the stuff going on with right to repair right now fighting against that. Yeah. And both of these different types of planned obsolescence that I've mentioned, cell phones are a really good example. Um, You know, there's been a lot about like Apple phones and I just recently was kind of forced to upgrade my phone uh, because the phone that I had just like it it wouldn't receive the software updates anymore Um, or maybe the battery life declined significantly and I can't just pop out the battery and put in a new one. I'd have to take it to an expert who can actually pull the phone apart to put a new battery in or i'd have to buy like a kit online and figure out how to do it and they put all the these barriers right this friction to make it so people won't try to fix what they own they'll just go buy a new one and because this has been happening over time like over generations uh on the consumer side people are just getting conditioned to buying new things you know replacing an item instead of trying to make it last very long or trying to fix it like most people when they buy a cell phone even though it is a very expensive purchase they don't expect to have it for more than just a couple of years another factor in all of this is something that's called consumer engineering or it's a way that advertisers designers they artificially create demand right they they try to make older objects seem undesirable and the new latest greatest thing be something that you have to go replace what you've already got with. So that's where you'll hear the term fast fashion. And as an example, consumers are buying five times more clothing than they did back in the 1980s. And in many cases, that's because marketers, advertisers, designers are doing such a good job at convincing people that what you have, even though it still functions, is now obsolete because it's not stylish, it's not trendy, you don't look as good, you won't feel as good if you continue wearing what you've been wearing this whole time. So we get this combination of fast fashion that drives producers to make more and more and more product at a faster speed, reducing the quality of the product. And you've got consumers who don't plan to keep the product for very long, which also drives down the demand for quality in the product. As quality in the product decreases, that's where we get something, a term called junkflation, where the same product that maybe you bought 10 years ago, now when you buy it today, it's made with less quality materials or it's just not made to last as long. Yeah, junkflation is a, 
a topic that you won't find a whole lot on out there, at least as far as it being called junkflation. But I do like the term because just like we have shrinkflation, junkflation is a, a product that might continue to cost the same, but the quality of it is decreasing in order for a company to lower its bottom line, right? Um, I read an example, Milky Way changed its ingredients basically to use a cheaper um, type of cocoa or something in it that resulted in, you know, maybe a few percent in the bottom line. Uh, the consumer may or may not notice that they don't taste as good as they used to or weren't as rich or whatever it might be. But in this case that we're talking about here with clothing, this is very real. And, and you mentioned several different pressures that are being applied that are causing, number one, the overall quality of the product to decrease and the amount of time that it's being used to decrease as well. Kellen, I like how sometimes in our podcast, um, we'll have like a one sentence introduction where we'll be like, the topic of today's episode is X. And then we have times like today where we're like 15 minutes into the podcast. And now we're like, this is the topic of the podcast, fast fashion. Yeah. And maybe I went a little bit overboard. That might have been overkill trying to give all the context. But I, I think it's important to highlight that there are a lot of factors at play here. Like, it's kind of a form of inflation in addition to all these others, and there's overlap between all of them. I think it's incredibly important. I think you did a great job. That was not to mock the way that you introduced the episode. It's just funny, I think, that we have such a contrast sometimes in how we do that. <laughs> well, to some, this topic might seem like something that seems irrelevant within the broader topic of collapse. And yet it's actually a very important issue for a number of reasons. So I think what would be very uh, valuable for us right now is to go through all of the big negative impacts that we see as a result of these trends uh, that are contributing to collapse and will also make collapse worse. And Corey, I know you have a lot of uh, quantitative data that will help us understand the scope of those problems even more. So I'll share two of these issues. One of them is that as we are producing just so much more stuff, right? We're producing so many more clothes because of fast fashion. You know, we're we're building more cars, even though the 2022 model and the 2023 model, the only difference is like the shape of the headlights. People feel like, oh, I've got to have the new one. This is the same with many aspects of technology. So we're not just talking about clothes when we talk about fast fashion, but as we're producing so much more stuff that we're making much more disposable, that means we're using a lot more energy, a significant increase in energy to produce a much higher quantity of things that we don't need. And as a result of that process, we're also producing much more waste. Waste in the manufacturing process, but also waste in all of these items we're producing that only get used for a short period of time before they're thrown out. Yeah, when it comes to energy usage for the numbers that I have are specifically for clothing, it's not just like this linear, okay, the population has increased and therefore we need more clothing. It's pretty wild to see how much it's actually changed over time, the amount of clothes that people are buying and how uh, long they're using them for has changed. So as an example, in the 1960s, 90% of all clothes in the U.S. were made in the U.S. Today, 
2% of clothes that we use here are made here. The rest is all imported from overseas. In 1960s, the average American purchased around 25 articles of clothing a year, which honestly, for me, I'm not a big clothes person. Um, I like to buy a pair of jeans and then wear the crud out of it until it's got holes in it. I don't usually own more than like two or three pairs at once. And it's not a conscious decision because I love the environment. I just hate buying clothes. So 25 articles of clothing a year even seems like a lot to me, unless we're counting like individual socks that I'm buying, I guess. But today, the average American purchases around 70 articles of clothing per year. So we've nearly tripled the number of clothes that we're buying per person per year over the last 60 years. In 1960s, the average American spent around 10% of their income on clothing and shoes, whereas today, the average, the average American spent around 3.5% of income on clothes and shoes. So we're buying almost three times as much clothes but we're spending a third as much to do it. And that comes out to what roughly, uh, you know, one ninth the cost for an article of clothing as it was back then. And so you can imagine um, that that cost isn't just because things are more efficient, but because the quality of that clothing has come down severely as well. Since the year 2000, the number of clothes bought in the U.S. has doubled and the number of times a piece of clothing is worn on average has decreased by 36%. Wow. And that's just in the last 20 years. So it's kind of depressing to think about the fact that so many people are, are buying clothes because it's trendy in the moment, and they're wearing it, you know, a third less as they would have just 20 years ago before throwing it away. And I can see where that's, you know, that positive feedback loop of junkflation and fast fashion and people might be wearing the same article of clothing many less times because it's falling apart faster because it's just crappier. Like you said, it's, it's less quality material. And part of it might be that they just want to get the new thing that's more yeah. trendy and those kind of feed off of each other. And I think some of the numbers that I'll show here in a second will show that I think, unfortunately, in the majority of cases, it's simply people throwing away clothes that um, didn't need to be thrown away yet. So globally, we're producing between 100 and 150 billion items of clothing per year, which is a lot of clothes. I'd say. And you can imagine to produce that much clothes would require a lot of energy. Um, but what really shocked me, I did not know this, the fashion industry is responsible for 10% of annual global carbon emissions. 10% of all, of all carbon emissions are from the fashion industry, more than all international flights and maritime shipping combined. I did not expect that. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. 
Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Yeah, the, when I first read it, I was like, oh, this is a typo, or like, it's 10% of emissions, you know, within a specific category. No, it's just 10% of emissions overall. They say that at this pace, the fashion industry's greenhouse gas emissions will surge by more than 50% in just the next 10 years. When it comes to pollution, um, around 20% of the wastewater globally comes from dyeing and treating clothes. And it's estimated that over 1 billion pounds, which is around 500,000 or so tons, of microplastics reach the ocean each year from clothing alone. A lot of the clothes um, that are being made with in this junkflation with just less quality materials. Those textiles are being made with synthetic fibers that come from um, crude oil, basically, and uh, from plastics. So that uh, that amount of microplastics going into the ocean is about 10% of, of all the microplastics that enter the ocean each year. Which is a really interesting paradox because here we are, you know, making the clothing industry one of the top carbon polluters and these synthetic fabrics that you mentioned uh, cause clothes to fall apart much easier. And yet the materials from those clothes don't entirely decompose the way that like natural materials do. So it's having this big spike on on waste in multiple ways. Yeah, when it comes to waste, this also blew my mind. Okay, so first of all, less than 1% of used clothes are recycled into new clothing. So you got 99% of that 100 to 150 billion articles of clothing that will eventually make their way into landfills. Half a trillion dollars is wasted each year in underworn clothing. So clothing that could have much more life in it. Uh, meaning if people wore those clothes until they were worn out, the world would have an extra $500 billion a year. Returns are a huge factor in this. Um, a lot of times when somebody returns a piece of clothing, the store can't resell it or they don't want to because they don't want to have to re-inventory it or put it back on a hanger or whatever that is, with returns equaling up to 30% of total purchases. So one in three purchases ends up getting returned and put in a, in a landfill. Also interesting is that each season the fashion industry produces a 30 to 40% surplus of clothes that don't get sold and are dumped without ever being worn. So there has been proof in videos and stuff of giant retailers and manufacturers just saying, oh, well, the fad of the week passed. We didn't sell all these. So into the garbage they go. So tragic. It's terrible. Um, that's around 13 million tons each year which is about 28 billion pounds of clothes. If you want a little bit of a fun number to kind of visualize how much clothes we're talking about, 92 million tons of waste each year is produced by clothing, which is the equivalent of a garbage truck's worth of clothes. So we're talking about a large, like the big garbage trucks that come by and pick up your cans. It's a garbage truck's worth of clothes thrown away every second of every day, <laughs> of every week, of every month, of every year. Oh. So, yeah, you just count one, two, three. That's a new garbage truck dumping a, a load of clothing into a landfill each time. Occasionally, we will share a number on this podcast that my immediate gut reaction is just shame at being a human being. <laughs> 
Yeah, for sure. Doing the research for this episode was so interesting because I didn't know these facts. And I think I didn't know them partially just because, like I said, my relationship with clothes is so dull. And like, I just, like, my wife has to beg me to buy new clothing. My shoes that I'm wearing right now, the, I'm going to pull this shoe off to show Kellen actually. The heel is just completely busted out of it. I've worn these shoes like this, um, for like two months. And it, I don't know. I just, I don't like spending money on new clothes. I don't like the process of going and trying them on. Anyway, all that's to say, I didn't realize how big of a deal clothes is to so many people. Uh, we, in a work meeting, we were talking about how many pairs of shoes everybody owns. And I was like, I think I have like five, but each one's for like a different purpose. I have my normal shoes. I have a pair of running shoes. I have some snow boots, you know, that a pair of dress shoes. And when I said five, like half the people in the meeting were just blown away. And one of them was like, I have 70 pairs of shoes. <laughs> you know, I have one for every, like I could wear a different pair of shoes, you know, uh, every day for three months. And, and I just, I couldn't believe it anyway. Sorry, I'm rambling, but the, my, my point is that uh, for a lot of people, clothes are very much an important part of their life. And uh, it's clear in the numbers that, that we've just talked about that it's a problem. For those of you listening, Corey really did just pull off his shoe, which was completely unnecessary. He could have just turned his foot, showed me, but that's all right. You know, when we start filming these, People are going to be like, why is he wearing the same shirt he was wearing last week? <laughs> be like, because it's one of the six shirts that I, <laughs> that I own. All right. So clearly all of the energy, all of the pollution and waste from fast fashion is a major uh, influencer here in collapse. It's funny because we've talked about some big uh, emerging technologies we did an episode recently on heat pumps and you know, so many people talk about it as something that can save us. And it was something like, what was it? 1% or 3%? Like just this very small percentage of potential reduction. If there was widespread adoption in, in the amount of carbon emissions. And yet if everyone would just <laughs> make their clothes last a little bit longer and not be so caught up in fashion. Like we, we could do that in a heartbeat. Okay, a couple of other big issues um, with this topic. One of them is that people are just so much less resilient and independent individually. Because of this trend in consumer products and the fact that things are just so disposable, we don't make them last, we don't try to fix them, we just go buy the new thing. Um, what's going to happen when the new thing isn't there for us to buy? Uh, that makes us much more vulnerable individually, but also as communities, as societies. It's very few people that know how to like sew on a button to patch a, a pair of pants or to fix one of their shoes. Like we just don't have that skill set as a society anymore. And one of the things that we've talked about is that almost every collapse issue is going to manifest itself economically. That's going to be that much harder to get by as time goes on. And so 
if people don't have that skill and they're, they're kind of forced to go buy new things as soon as something wears out or wears down, that's going to make it that much more unlikely that people can thrive or even survive on a larger scale collectively. When we see future issues with supply chains, the supply chain goes down because of these trends and with like junkflation and fast fashion, people won't be able to make it as long with their existing products. And so I see this as a huge point of vulnerability for us. Yeah. I mean, if people are buying clothes or a pair of shoes or whatever it is, that's meant to last for a few months before it's thrown away versus a person who's bought like a pair of shoes that are good to last 10 years. Like obviously the people who are treating their clothing as disposable are going to struggle when they suddenly don't have them at their disposal. It's the same with, when we talk about resiliency, the idea is to become your own supply chain the best as possible and to just not need a supply chain as much as possible. You know, an example would be instead of having to go to the store to buy toilet paper every couple of weeks, uh, if you had a bidet, right? Like it just makes it so that you don't have to rely on a store having that for you at any time. And yeah, the same goes with clothes. If I have to go buy a new like pair of socks once a month because uh, my other pairs are wearing out or whatever, if suddenly they become less available, I'm very quickly going to find myself in some trouble. I am the type of person, generally, I like to buy, if I can, if I can afford it, buy a quality something once, right, or once a decade, then have to buy it 10 times, you know, once a year. Number one, because it's going to save me money in the long run. But number two, because I know that if anything happened, I wouldn't have to worry for a good while about panicking to get more. All right, so we've mentioned... We're using more energy. We're wasting more. We're being uh, less resilient individually and as a, a larger community. But one of the ones that I think we'll dive in a little bit deeper on that is especially concerning is that as we are trying to produce more of these products at a faster and faster scale, there's clear evidence that we're making terrible working conditions for a large number of people. And those working conditions continue to deteriorate. Yeah, you think about the stat that I mentioned earlier that was said that, you know, 90% of clothes in the 60s in the U that were purchased in the US were made in the US. Well, in the 70s, the production of fashion started to move away from being done domestically to being imported from foreign countries. And many countries in, in Asia and South America they were able to start producing clothing at a cheaper rate. And that made it so that if a company tried to keep their production domestic, um, they usually went out of business. That was just not just in the U.S., but anywhere in sort of the Western world. And of course, the labors that was coming from those countries uh, were from the creation of sweatshops, from the use of child labor. And when I say were, I mean are. There are 75 million people today around the world who work directly in the manufacturing of clothes. And so when doing business with countries like Vietnam or Bangladesh or India or even China, companies are able to separate themselves along sort of those steps of the supply chain, meaning there's a lack of oversight and therefore they don't have to 
feel they have legal responsibility. They don't have legal responsibility basically for ethical working conditions. They're able to just make a transaction with a country or, or excuse me, with a, a manufacturer in a different country. A price is offered, new clothes show up. They don't have to say who made these clothes, how are they made. They can just turn a blind eye to it. And of course, so many of them do. It's estimated that less than 2% of those 75 million workers make a living wage from their jobs. And not just that, not just are they not making money and, and is it putting them under the poverty line, but many of those workers are laboring 16 hours a day and they're working six or seven days a week. Production is often a cancer risk. Um, they work with up to 8,000 different synthetic materials in the production of, of clothing. And obviously, without proper protective equipment being worn, perhaps uh, proper knowledge of the chemicals they're working with. Here's one paragraph from the International Law and Policy Brief. It says, There are also structural dangers that come with avoiding codes. This was demonstrated by the deadliest garment industry accident in modern history in Bangladesh when the Rana Plaza factory collapsed in 2013 and 1,100 people were killed and 2,500 more were injured. Safeguards on the building had expired, and engineers had even recommended the building should be condemned. However, workers were ordered to come in anyway, and they came for fear of not being paid. After this incident, building inspections were done on 1,106 factories used by fast fashion companies, and 80,000 safety-related issues were found. That's nearly 80 issues per factory that were found. You know, I have seen some documentaries in the past. It's been a while um, since I've watched these, but on like sweatshops and child labor in those countries. And it is just unbelievably sad how how it works. So many of the people who work in them feel obligated to. They don't have any other options. And it, it basically in the UN has even said this, that it equates to slave labor. Basically, if you're forcing someone into a working condition because they have no other options and that allows you to control what you pay them, how you treat them, their overall working conditions, it's slavery. And, you know, you often hear about low wages being paid, but to consider that 98% of those workers make below a living wage and that those there's 75 million of them, uh, it puts a new perspective on, you know, when I go to the store and look at where my clothes are made something to really think about. I think in the past, if I were to look at that tag, uh, it was normally to consider the quality. You'd look at a tag and you'd say, oh, it's made in China. It's probably not great quality, right? And I don't know if that's a if that's a racist way to think or if it's just because I know that it's going to be made with cheaper materials. you know. But now it's like, if I'm looking at that tag, it should be who's making my clothes, under what conditions are they making them, and, you know, if I'm purchasing this item of clothing that's coming from Bangladesh, what type of organization or working conditions am I supporting? And I feel like I hear a lot of different uh, thoughts around this. Um, primarily, it's that, like you mentioned, people are able to distance themselves from it. Like, oh, it's happening somewhere else in the world, but don't tell me about it. I don't want to hear it. I just see... When I go to the store, there's a shirt that I want. I'm not going to really think about who made it or why. Uh, I hear other people who feel like, you know, this is happening so broadly, so frequently 
that almost no matter where I shop or what country my clothes were made in, it's probably the case. And so people feel kind of powerless, like, okay, so I choose not to buy that shirt. It's not going to change anything for anybody. And in some cases, people feel like, well, if I don't buy this, then that means, you know, somebody in Bangladesh isn't going to make their wage. And maybe those are just uh, efforts to justify, but it's clearly a, a deeply entrenched issue. And it's hard to know what to do as a consumer about it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and it's the same way with everything we talk about, right? What difference can I make in the grand scheme of things with my small purchasing habits? I think one thing that we can do, maybe maybe not buying an article of clothing from a company that has slave labor in Bangladesh, maybe that doesn't change anything, but consciously buying clothing from a company that goes out of its way to have an ethical production process showing support for that company like those companies need to succeed right in order for them for there to be more of them and i think um each customer in a small niche business doing its part to to at least have ethical practices can make a difference and again like we don't you know up to this point i haven't been that way with my clothing purchases after this episode, it's making me think more about about that and, and wanting to put more focus on that. But we're not prescriptive. We're not saying, like, you're a bad person if you buy your clothes at Walmart, you know. But I guess just for me personally, this idea of thinking that uh, there's an impact here that I don't think I fully had understood before and, and would like to try and do my part to maybe just for my own, like, privileged guilt, you know, to not feel that. Because what you were saying is so true. It's so easy to dis- to distance ourselves from it. I think in the past, I've thought about it as like, and when I say the past, not the recent past, but I- I've probably caught myself thinking like, while there are sweatshops out there, they're not all sweatshops, right? Just because my clothes are made in Bangladesh doesn't mean that it was made by like a 12-year-old making six cents an hour or something. But looking at these stats and hearing that only 2% of those 75 million people are paid above a living wage at all does make me realize that those justifications, those thoughts are incorrect. Well, for something that seems so trivial, uh, you know, we've focused a lot here on the clothing aspect, but caring about being trendy and allowing, uh, you know, an entire civilization to get so caught up on that, that we have allowed ourselves to, live with all these big problems and drive ourselves that much closer to the edge of the cliff, uh, to me, it, it is a reflection of the broader issue. So often when we talk about collapse, it comes back to kind of this this greed, this lust for comfort, for convenience, uh, in this case for status or for being uh, popular or trendy. And to think that uh, such unnecessary trivial reasons are continuing to take us further down this path uh, makes me want to take a much harder look in the mirror. You know, I think of, uh, of books or movies like the hunger games where there's the different districts, right? And each one is known for producing a certain thing and they're doing it in an sort of an oppressed way, right? They're working in, in these terrible conditions. It's basically slave labor. And then I think, 
75 million people, that's roughly the population of, it's between the population of France and Germany. If we knew that every single person alive in the country of Germany was basically working under slave conditions in order to support the trendy, like you're talking about, the, the, the quick uh, come and go trends, and that the number could be well under that. And that those people could be treated better. They could be paid well if we could just get rid of the idea of fast fashion and instead of focusing on trends and what's new right now, focusing on quality and durability, longevity, resiliency. You know, people might wake up and, and realize in that case we are living in a sort of Hunger Games world. But because uh, those people might live in a third world country and because they're spread out in a way that we don't have to pay attention to it, so many people just don't. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.